Well, we're continuing our church's sermon series through the book, The Acts of the Apostles. And today we're going to be hearing a passage of scripture that recounts a prayer meeting that followed after, after the early church began to experience persecution. And to read that for us is Rachel. So come on up, Rachel. Today's scripture reading comes from Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place." And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, they, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Pastor Leonardo has to ask permission from local authorities each Sunday before he gets up to preach. He works in ministers in Colombia's red zones. These are areas of the country where guerrilla, paramilita um, uh, paramilitary, and other groups are in active conflict with one another. And these groups don't like what Pastor Leonardo or the other churches are doing, you see, because when young men become Christians, they become less open to a life of violence. And so he has to get permission before preaching each week. And twice he's arrived at his church building to be met with armed thugs standing at the door who said to him, no service today. What would you do if you were in Pastor Leonardo's shoes? This past August and this September, two separate incidences, there were two churches in Sri Lanka, both of whom received notice from the local government instructing them to close down. The churches were told that their very presence was impeding religious harmony in their community. And they were told that they were no longer licensed to hold worship services in their village. They were warned that if they continued to host religious services, legal action would be taken against the church and its leadership. What would you do if you were a member of one of those Sri Lankan communities? On July 17th, Father Iona, a minister in the Russian Orthodox Church, was imprisoned by the Russian police because he'd been speaking against the war in Ukraine. He explained through his lawyer that he's a committed Christian pacifist and that his conscience demanded that he speak out. His trial took place several weeks ago and on November 15th, uh, 10 days from now or so, the verdict will come down from the judge. 
Father Iona is facing up to 10 years in prison. What would you do if you were a member of his family? What did the early church do when they encountered threats, hostility, persecution on account of their Christian faith? They fell on their knees and they prayed. That's the passage that Rachel just read for us this morning, is the prayer meeting of the early church in response to an experience of persecution. Now, in order for us to grasp this prayer meeting, it's important that we're aware of a bit of the context, the events that took place immediately before this prayer meeting. So if you weren't with us last week, Pastor Dan walked us through um, the end of Acts chapter 3 and beginning of Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John are on their way to the temple. And as they go towards the temple, they encounter a middle-aged man lying at the side of the road. He's been uh, paralyzed from the waist down for his entire life, and he's begging. It's one of the only avenues available to him in the ancient world. And Peter and John look at this man, they engage with him, and through that engagement, he's healed in the name of Jesus Christ. And now you can imagine the excitement of that ancient community. They've seen this man for years lying at the side of the road begging, and here he is standing with Peter and John. And so people rush towards Peter and John to find out what's happening. And Peter takes that opportunity to preach about Jesus, to preach that there's healing in the name of Jesus, to preach that Jesus had come to save sinners like you and like me. And the text tells us that this preaching annoyed the religious leaders. And so they sent a contingent to detain Peter and John. They arrested them. They threw them in prison overnight. And the next day, Peter and John were brought forth uh, in front of the high priest Ananias, the high priestly family, the rulers, the scribes, so that they could answer for their actions. Peter and John were questioned. They were threatened. They were told no longer to speak in the name of Jesus. And then ultimately, they were let go. And that's where our passage begins today. So if you want to follow along with me in a bulletin or online or in a Bible, we'll be starting in verse 23. Peter and John returns to their, they return to their friends. They return to the community, and they tell them everything that happened. They tell them how they were arrested. They tell them the questions that the chief priest asked them, including, in whose name did you heal this man? They tell them that they were instructed not to share anymore in the name of Jesus, and they tell them about the threats. Now, what I'd like for us to see from this incident is that as the gospel spreads, it is often met with hostility. That certainly was true in the ancient world. The gospel message is this, that Jesus is king. Jesus is king. And the religious establishment in ancient Israel did not like that message. They said, this Jesus, this Jesus from a shady town like Nazareth, this Jesus born to an unwed mother, this Jesus who ate with tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners, this Jesus who touched lepers, this Jesus who befriended women, this Jesus who criticized our religion and who hung on a cross as a criminal, God's anointed king of Israel? No way. The idea was laughable. And so the religious establishment in ancient Israel began to come down on the early church, as we saw in our text today. But it wasn't just ancient Israel. It was also the Gentile nations. 
Scholars believe that Jesus Christ was born between 6 and 4 AD. And during that time, Caesar Augustus was the Roman emperor. Now, Caesar Augustus became emperor after a long period of civil war following the death of Julius Caesar. So this is a very tumultuous time in the ancient Roman world. And when Caesar Augustus became emperor, that tumult stopped. He brought peace and security to the people in the Roman Empire. And so, as a consequence, people started referring to Caesar Augustus as our savior. He's the one that brought us peace from our enemies. They began to refer to him as their Lord, and in some areas of the empire, they even began to worship him as God. And so when the early Christian community was telling people that Jesus is king, they were implicitly hearing the message, Caesar is not. And as a consequence, the church experienced several several hundred years of state-sanctioned persecution in the Roman Empire. The gospel message is met with hostility as it spreads into the world. But we're not so different from that ancient world today. There's a, um, a Christian ministry called Open Doors that had some interesting statistics from last year, from 2021. And they, they said in 2021, 360 million Christians lived in areas of the world where they experienced high levels of discrimination and persecution because they believe that Jesus is king. In the year 2021, 5,898 Christians were killed because of their Christian faith. That's over 16 a day. In the year 2021, 5,110 churches and other Christian buildings were destroyed or vandalized. We could add to that list many churches in Canada on First Nations reserves run by First Nations leadership. In the year 2021, 4,765 Christians were detained, imprisoned, arrested, often without trial. Today is the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. And so I would encourage you, when you go home today, before you go to bed, pray for your brothers and sisters around the world. There's a a helpful resource that you can Google called Voice of the Martyrs. And they have some stories that might be helpful to inspire your prayers as you seek to pray for our brothers and sisters who experience persecution around the world. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't experience that kind of active, physical, hostile persecution in the Western world. And any Christian who claims that we do is being hyperbolic at best. Even so, there is a subtle undercurrent of hostility towards the news that Jesus is king in our culture. Is there not? You see, if I say Jesus is my king, that's okay. If I say Jesus is my savior, that's okay. But if I say that Jesus is the king, that has some pretty big implications. That means he's the king of me, he's the king of you, he's the king of the church, but he's also the king of those who don't yet recognize him. And he's owed all of our allegiance. Is that message welcome in the safe spaces of your university campus, no matter how lovingly or winsomely communicated? Is the message that Jesus is king 
welcome at the lunch table in your office, no matter how lovingly or winsomely communicated. And so we see that around the world today, the gospel continues to encounter hostility as it spreads in our world. Let's continue on into verse 24. So Peter and John have been threatened. Don't teach in the name of Jesus anymore. Now, what would you or I do in that kind of situation? I imagine there's a whole diversity of responses. Perhaps some of us would say, all right, we're going to fly under the radar a little bit more. We're going to try not to ruffle any feathers. We're going to see if there's some areas we can accommodate while still staying true to our Christian faith. Perhaps others of us would say, nonsense, I'm going on the attack. We're going to make a stink on social media. We're going to write our MP. We are going to call a constitutional lawyer or a human rights lawyer. Those could all be legitimate responses to persecution, but that's not what the early church did. They fell on their knees in prayer. And I just think that's such an interesting response that in the middle of a crisis, for most of us, our proclivity would be to jump to some kind of action, but their proclivity was to fall on their knees in prayer. And I think it's because the early church knew this. Prayer is action. We're going to spend the rest of our time this morning walking through and unpacking that prayer. Now, I've been told by many that if I don't give you three points in a sermon, you start to physically sweat. (laughs) So I'll give you three points. We're going to see that in their prayer, they begin by remembering who God is, that they then go on to recite God's word, and lastly, they request boldly of God. It's even an alliteration, guys, so hopefully we can all just, ah, all right, let's hop in. They open up their prayer meeting by remembering who God is. Now, this is interesting. Their, their prayer is actually seven verses long. It runs from verse 24 to verse 30. Is that six? For, anyway, my math. It's, I think it's seven verses long. They spend the first five verses of their prayer remembering God's attributes, reciting God's word. And they only start to ask God for something in the last two verses. And why do they do that? Has, has God forgotten who God is? Has God forgotten what his word says? Does God need to be reminded? No, he doesn't. But we do. We do. We need to be reminded when we come to prayer that we're coming before the sovereign Lord. The one who made the heaven tells us we need to be reminded. And when we remember who God is, it puts our problems in perspective. You see, this ancient community, they looked at the people that were opposing them. It was the high priest. It was the elders of the community, the scribes. These were the societal, cultural, and religious elites in ancient Israel. Imagine if Premier Ford, Mayor John Tory, and the entire City Council of Toronto took a personal and passionate interest in getting rid of Grace Toronto. That'd be very intimidating. And that's what the community is experiencing here. And so they remember that they're coming to the sovereign Lord, the one who created the heavens, the earth, the seas, and all that dwell therein. 
These opponents who are persecuting the church, they look so powerful. They look so unstoppable when, in fact, they're just creatures, just like us. God made these people just as he made us. They're creatures, mortals in his hand. And though they seem like giants, they seem unstoppable, they are not ultimately the sovereign ones. God is. And so their prayers and their petitions are put in perspective as they remember who God is. And you know, the same is true today, that those forces which persecute God's church today, those groups in Colombia, we could think of Boko Haram in Nigeria, we could think about the communist regime in North Korea, we can think about the subtle cultural pressures in the Western world. These things are a drop in the bucket compared to the real power of the sovereign Lord, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Thank you, yes, amen. To step back for a moment of application here. For the early church, it was so helpful to remember the power of God as they felt powerless in a given situation. And I wonder, as you think right now about the prayer requests that are coming to your mind most frequently these days. Think about that. What's the prayer request that's popping into your mind most frequently these days? Is there an attribute of God that you could meditate upon in your prayer life, which could be an encouragement to you during that prayer? Could it be an encouragement to reflect on the fact that God is your shepherd, that he's your friend, he's your protector, he's your provider, your healer, the almighty one, I don't know what it is for you, but I think it could be valuable for us to reflect. Is there an attribute of God that could encourage me in this season of my life? So the early church began by remembering who God was, and they move on now to recite a passage of Scripture. And they recite Psalm, the second Psalm, verses 1 to 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Why did Psalm 2 come to the mind of the early church during their prayer meeting? Well, as they began to experience persecution, they remembered that a thousand years earlier, King David had wrote a prophetic psalm speaking about the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, and saying of him that the kings and the rulers, the nations would gather together to oppose him. And the early church remembered that psalm and they remembered the events of the life of Jesus. They said, you know what? Herod and Pilate were gathered together against Jesus. The civilian people of Israel And the Roman soldiers gathered together against Jesus. We follow a persecuted king. And should it be a surprise, therefore, that we ourselves experience persecution? I want to make an aside here. As this passage makes it clear at whose hands, the death of Jesus came about. It was Herod representing Israel, Pilate representing the Gentile world. It was the the civilian peoples of Israel, and it was the Gentile 
Roman soldiers. What the Bible is saying is that the death of Jesus came at the hands of all of us. All of us. And I want us to remember that, church, because this is an aside, but there has been a dark anti-Semitic stain in the history of the church where theologians have said the Jews were the ones to kill Jesus, and they've justified their hate based on that fact. But that's not what this passage tells us this morning. It tells us that the death of Jesus came at the hands of all of us, peoples of Israel and Gentiles alike. And I think on a day when we're talking about persecution in the church, it's an important reminder that we stand up with other communities who themselves experience persecution. We can think about a certain human rights lawyer who is paid for by the government of Canada to teach anti-hatred to our broadcasters, who himself was a spewer of the most vile hatred you could read against the Jewish people. And tragically, the only MPs who stood up against this hatred in the House of Commons were themselves Jewish. The Gentile MPs were all too silent. We can think about tweets of Kanye West, posters going up in the U.S. saying, Kanye's right about the Jews, and the silence of the church has been deafening. We, as a persecuted people who follow a persecuted king, should have no room for the persecution of other people's groups. I've digressed, so I'm going to return to the text now. The church remembered. Psalm 2 tells us we follow a persecuted king. And the church went on to remember, in verse 28, they said, you know, this persecution of Jesus, it wasn't out of God's control. In fact, in verse 28, they say, God's sovereign hand and plan had predestined that this would take place. Now, of course, that's not where God's plan ends, but what they're remembering is that it was part of God's plan that Jesus Christ would suffer and that through his suffering, the nations would be blessed and healing would come to this world. It's not the end of the story that Jesus would suffer because the story continues where God's hand also predestined that Jesus would rise glorious from the grave, that he would ascend into heaven and be glorified and sit on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. In fact, if they had continued in their quotation of Psalm chapter 2, they would have arrived at verse 8, which says, speaking of the Messiah, Ask me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. It was God's will that Jesus Christ would suffer, but that's not the end of the story. It was also God's will that Jesus Christ would be vindicated. And this prayer meeting, they're seeing themselves in that story. They're saying, okay, we follow a persecuted and vindicated Savior. So right now we are persecuted, but we can have confidence that one day we too will be vindicated. What an encouragement that would have been for that community. The church was persecuted, but the church would ultimately be victorious. I want to step back again from the prayer for a moment to observe what we can learn from this for our own lives of prayer. I think it's so interesting that they start their prayer by remembering who God is and then reciting the truths of God's scripture instead of just jumping into their petitions. I think there's something we can learn from that. You see, 
when they started by remembering who God is and reciting God's words, it's going to shape the things that they ask for and the boldness with which they ask. I've heard it said that if we have a small view of God, we will ask him for small things. But if we have a big view of God, we will ask him for big things. And so they start their prayer by reorienting themselves to that big view of God. And what could your prayer lives look like if we adopted that similar posture more frequently? I'm not saying your prayers always have to look like that. Not all the prayers in the Bible do, right? We have some Psalms from the Old Testament where they just, they just jump right in. How long, O oh Lord? How long? And so it's, it's okay to have different kinds of prayers, but I think our prayers could be benefited if we follow the example of the early church here. Jesus himself, when he taught us how to pray, he said, yes, ask for your daily bread. But first we hallow God's name and pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's move on to verses 29 and 30. This is where the church requests boldly of God. So they've been praying for five verses, and at last they come to the point where they ask God for something. And again, they ask him for three things. How perfect. Firstly, look upon their threats. I find that language interesting because, again, this community was steeped in the scriptures of the Old Testament. They were familiar with the imprecatory psalms where the psalmist prays, break the arm of the wicked, destroy our enemies, vanquish those who oppose us. And so they might have prayed that way, but they didn't. They said, look upon their threats. If I was to paraphrase that, they're saying, God, hold those who persecute us in your mind, in your heart. You know what is right. And so they're humbling, humbly trusting God to do what is right. Secondly, they pray, grant us boldness to speak your word. So they don't ask that God would destroy their enemies. They don't even ask that God would take this cup of persecution away from them, though those might have been appropriate prayers. But instead they pray that God would continue to give them strength to endure. More than strength, that he would grant them boldness to speak your word. You know, Grace Toronto, I can't remember the last time I prayed something like that. What might happen if our church community of five or 600 people prayed that God would give us opportunities to share his word, that God would grant us winsomeness to share his word, and that God would give us boldness to take those opportunities to lovingly tell people, Jesus is your king, and he loves you. What might that look like? Their third request, stretch out your hand to perform healings, signs, and miracles, wonders in the name of Jesus. Back when John and Peter were detained by the religious authorities, um, and they were brought before the council, verse 14 in Acts chapter 4 tells us that the, the leaders looked at the man that had been healed, and they could say nothing to Peter or John. Because the healing itself was a sign which verified that there is power in the, name of the Jesus, in the name of Jesus. And so the early church is saying, we need more of that. 
We need more of that. We need more of those signs and wonders that verify the truth of what we are saying. In Grace Toronto, we need more of that. We need more of that. Last week, Pastor Dan told the story of a young man, I believe it was in Costa Rica, who was born without the ability to speak. And yet, when he came to follow Christ, suddenly his tongue was loosened and he was able to speak. And this was, this was a supernatural miracle. Could it be we need more of that? Could it be we need more miracles which don't look as supernatural externally, but they're just as miraculous under the surface? Being a community where true reconciliation can happen. Being a community that pours out our, our finances and our energy with generosity to bring refugees into Canada. Being a community where friendships form across social classes where friendships frequently would not exist. We need those miracles that accompany our words with power. And so thus the prayer meeting concludes and in verse 31 we see that the place that they are in shakes. The people are filled anew with the Holy Spirit and they go forth speaking with boldness about Jesus. You know, it's interesting. I imagine that when the community heard Peter and John had just been arrested, that they themselves were shaking when that prayer meeting started. But they're not shaking anymore at the end. The room is. And this community, steeped in the scriptures of the Old Testament, would know immediately that when the place is being shaken around them, that is a sign of the presence of God amongst them. They'd think back to the people of Israel, led by Moses to Mount Sinai, where they encounter God, and the mountain itself shakes with the presence of the Lord. They'd think back to the prophet Isaiah, who had a vision of God in Isaiah chapter 6, where the temple itself shakes with God's very presence, and now the room they are in shakes. God is amongst them. And the people are given boldness to go and to continue speaking that Jesus is king, despite the threats that were amongst them. And God didn't just answer this prayer once. We're going to see as we continue to walk through the Acts of the Apostles that in the rest of the book, God will continue to answer this prayer as the early church continues to speak about Jesus with boldness and as their speaking is accompanied with signs and wonders. As we draw to a close today, I'd like to draw our attention just to a few additional points of application. The first would be this. The early church, the ministry of the early church was effective and powerful because they were indwelt by and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And if our community wishes to have an impact in our world today, we need the same. We need to be praying for the power of the Holy Spirit to be amongst us all. It's interesting, I mean, Peter and John were eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus Christ. They saw Jesus being crucified, they saw his resurrected body, they touched him, they ate with him, they watched his ascension, and they needed the Holy Spirit to grant them boldness. How much more, Grace Toronto, do we need that boldness 2,000 years removed from these original events? We need to be praying for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we need to be praying for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. In a few moments, we'll be taking communion together, but before we take communion, we'll be reciting the Apostles' Creed. 
And in the creed, we affirm that we believe in the holy Catholic church, the holy universal church. We are one body. We're one body with brothers and sisters in parts of Nigeria who are persecuted by Boko Haram. We are one body with our brothers and sisters in North Korea persecuted by the communist regime. We are one body with Father Iona wasting away in a Russian prison. And we need to be praying because when one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers as any of us who have had pain know to be so true. And so tonight, again, I encourage you, pray for your brothers and sisters around the world. Lastly, I think it's very interesting to note that in the section of scripture that was read for us this morning, we're presented with two things. We see one, a prayer meeting. We hear what the people prayed for, and two, we see how God responded to that prayer meeting, how he answered those prayers. And let that be an encouragement to you to grow in the area of sharing with others when God answers your prayers. I don't know about you, but I'm very good when someone says, how can I pray for you? I'll say, oh, you can can pray for this. And then I never mention it again what might have happened as a follow-up. So let's be good at sharing how God responds to our prayers because that is going to encourage our community to continue to ask God for bold things. And so the early church we see today experienced persecution, and that continues with the church today. Let us be a community of people who pray for boldness as we follow and speak about our persecuted King Jesus, regardless of what the rulers and the authorities think, as we await the day when the nations will be made his inheritance and the ends of the earth his possession. Amen. If we have time and if the phone is sufficiently charged, we will have time for some Q&A. Are these things true, Tarek? These things are true, he says. Okay. All right. Uh, Grandma, you have a question here. What does it look like to speak the word with boldness, aside from simply praying for that to happen in our lives? The disciples seem to pray for that and want to do that also. Yeah, so good question. I'm not advocating. It would be very bold just to go out the doors and start yelling at people on the street, right? Very bold, not very wise, not very loving, potentially. So what I would advocate in our North American context would be firstly, a simple prayer. Praying, Lord, would you give me opportunities to share your love with someone? Would you give me opportunities? And would you give me eyes of faith to see those opportunities when they come? It could even be asking people questions that go beneath the surface. How are you doing? You know, um, I'm a person of prayer. I don't know if that's something you've experienced, but is there anything I could be praying for you? I don't think it needs to be big or crazy. I think it just needs to be looking actively for those opportunities and taking them as they come. Uh, You have many questions here about Kanye West. Oh, boy. Um, (laughs) Since he called that a digression, I'll let you respond to that. When I go, yeah, when you go off manuscript. Yeah, great, okay. You call that a digression, so I will treat it as such. Here, uh, does this text give us license to interpret Old Testament texts as being 
fulfilled in our experiences and circumstances. So you mentioned how they remembered Psalm 2 and they interpreted that into their uh, current situation. What does that mean for us today? Okay. I wonder if the person asking this question is thinking about a book like Revelation and reading about, you know, are the great beasts of Revelation, does it, you know, have to do with the Soviet Union or, or things like that? Um, I think what I would advocate is a Christocentric approach to reading the whole Bible. Um, in, in my family, we have a, a children's Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible, and the subtitle is, Every Story Whispers His Name, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so I would advocate absolutely reading the Bible through a Christocentric lens, which is exactly what this community was doing in this time. In terms of applying um, prophetic words to our day to day, I would be highly cautious of that. Um, I think, I think it's, it's fairer to say there are certain things um, that we might experience today which resonate with the teachings of scripture. For example, we read a passage today about the persecuted church. It's fair to say that we can identify with them in that. But in terms of specific prophecies about the Soviet Union and so on, nuclear warheads, um, I'd be skeptical of that personally. Okay. Thanks, we do Graham. One more? What do you think? Uh, I think Chen said there's only time for two, but I'll give only you time for two. fun afterwards. Okay. Maybe I can email you about Kanye. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Graham. If you have some more questions, Graham's available afterwards, so you can come find him and ask some questions. Uh, but we're going to pray as we go towards uh, the Song of Reflection. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text where you instruct us uh, to pray for boldness, uh, to think wisely about what it means to be in the city, uh, to uh, care about your church around the world and the way that your body is uh, growing and being persecuted. And we ask that you would, uh, you would reveal all these things to us and you would help us to obey you in this manner. Uh, we thank you for Jesus, uh, that we follow a persecuted king, a Lord and a Savior pray that you would impress his goodness and his beauty to us, uh, that we would leave this place uh, shaken and more and more bold. In Jesus' name, amen.